Rorschach tests, more commonly known as inkblots, just like this here, um, are one of the most controversial tools in cognitive psychology and the most fascinating, I would add. See, Rorschach tests were started in the 1920s. They were the brainchild of the, uh, it was Herman Rorschach, but it wasn't until the 1940s and 50s that inkblots became a staple in the field. So the Rorschach test just has patients examine like maybe 10 or so plates like this that have uh, these big splotches of ink against a white background. And then they're asked to, to describe what shapes or images they see coming out of it. So with every Rorschach test, I just see a Jaguar E-type. But um, <laughs> it could just be my own issues. Um, their answers, so the theory goes, will allegedly provide insight into their psychology and thus their past and maybe even future decisions. It's used, though, as a, what's called a projective measure for their personality. Patients project their own concerns, biases, pattern-forming uh, reasoning skills, instincts onto the image when they try to make sense of it. And it's a good thing Jesus makes blind men see because that thing is a mess. Most of them are, but that's kind of the point. You see, these say way more about the person looking at them, then they do the image himself. Oddly enough, uh, Rorschach, he went on record saying this, um, that the only demographic the inkblot test would not help was teenagers because, and I quote, they have too much in common with the clinically insane. <laughs> I laugh now. <laughs> we'll see if I laugh when I have one. Uh, anyway, this test is controversial partly because it wasn't even designed to be like a projective test. It was initially put together uh, to form kind of a consensus of the kinds of answers those with schizophrenia would provide when looking at this. And it kind of took on a life of its own a little later. You know, unfortunately, the subjective nature of a test like this the fact that it says way more about me looking at it than it does itself is true in some other areas. It's true in the verse we just read, to be frank. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Since I've been a Christian, I've seen this verse interpreted and used in more ways than I can count. The first time I even heard of it or saw it used, uh, I was in high school at a youth group, and uh, we, had a, we had a Pentecostal pastor come by and give all the senior boys dating advice for when we went off to college. And what he told us was, when you date a girl, make sure she speaks in tongues. Why? Because you don't want to be unequally yoked. I've seen pastors use this verse to encourage believers to break ties with other believers who maybe don't agree on every little point because, after all, you don't want to be unequally yoked. Gasp. I've seen Christians in secular work environments a lot use this verse to discourage believers from hanging out or seeing a movie or a ball game with non-Christian coworkers they happen to share an office with. 
They'd say things like, I'm just really concerned about you. I don't know if you should grab dinner with those guys. I just don't want you to be unequally yoked. That's all. So this verse is extremely similar to the Rorschach tests in that they say way more about us than we do it. Christians project their own pet peeves, fears, insecurities, and holy causes, hobby horses, onto verses like this. But crucially, this verse is very different from an ink blot test. In that, this has an objective meaning, whereas the black smudges we saw earlier do not. And this has sort of been something I've been wrestling with for about a week. I've been trying to like whittle this down to the kind of the most cogent, simple, easy to way to put it I can get that you don't have to explain things for 20 minutes in order for this command to make sense. And I whittled it down to this. I think it means something like, as you serve Jesus, avoid partnerships with those who say they love Christ but resent the meekness of his gospel. Avoid partnerships with those who say they love Christ, but resent the meekness of his gospel. Meekness there just meaning it's strength under control and willingly acquainting itself with a kind of weakness, a humility, a non-pretentious presentation. Now, it's helpful to familiarize yourself a little bit with like, what's going on here, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the image provided itself, that of being yoked. We're also going to look at the label. Unbelievers. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. Where does that come from? What does it mean? And who's it applying to? And then we're also going to look at the kinds of partnerships Paul is trying to urge Christians in Corinth, still on his side, still on his team, not following the super apostles, the kinds of partnerships they should flee. But first, let's look at the image we're given. What's a yoke? I think simply put, a yoke is just a spiritual partnership with others that assumes the same goal. That's all it is. The spiritual partnership that assumes the same goal, that we're going in the same direction, doing this for the same reason. A yoke was just a wooden frame that they'd put across like um, the necks of you know, oxen or donkeys, and they would be connected to that plow behind them. And when they would walk, yes, it would drag that plow, but it would also keep them in unison. Farmers could use two donkeys or more together. They could use two oxen together. That's fine. But what you did not do, what you never did, was put a donkey alongside the ox and put them to the same yoke, to pull the same plow. Because donkeys and oxen drag that blade very differently. Yoking them together would be a recipe for disaster. It was seen as a preventative for animal cruelty, at least in, the, in Moses' Old Testament law. You look in like Deuteronomy 22, there's a law against putting these two animals together. Why? Well, the oxen could often end up dragging that donkey. It gets exhausted, can't keep up, it falls down, breaks a leg, you're out of donkey. And in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul plucks this ancient law out of Deuteronomy 
to make an urgent caution to the Corinthians, who are very tempted to follow some guys, some super apostles they do not understand. And what he's saying is, if you serve Jesus in this fissured, hemorrhaging church, the time has come to sever partnerships with those who say they love Jesus but resent his meekness. Because those kinds of partnerships not only scar the land, they maim and endanger the animals that plow it. Let the reader understand. In other words, believers get hurt badly. What about that super harsh label, though? Unbelievers. He drops the U-bomb. What gives? Let's talk about what it doesn't mean. First off, it does not mean you can't have unchristian friends. If you're in junior high, it does not mean you can't talk to the Hindu kid in algebra class. It's not what he's getting at. It's not forbidding friendships with atheists, pagans, or whatever. Paul's not talking about them in general. How do we know? It's because a few years before, Paul was giving very similar advice to the exact same church. And he had to clarify, hey guys, I don't mean stop associating with non-Christians outside the church who are ethically, religiously, or sexually compromised. That's not what I'm getting at. He meant those inside the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I think. This is one of those verses that you kind of forget is in the Bible when you see it. You're like, oh my land, how long has that been there? Like you kind of check it to see if the ink's still wet. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who does these things. So Paul isn't just referring to non-church people. When he uses the word unbelievers, what's he talking about? He's referring to church people who know the gospel but hate what it stands for. Do not be unequally yoked with church people who know the gospel, but hate it. He means, in this context, those celebrity apostles that are outright abusing you and teaching you really weird stuff, and the ilk that follows them, you got to get away from those guys, because it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad quickly. He's talking about folks whose constant argument on the ground is that Paul is not legit because he's not eloquent enough, dignified enough, successful enough, polished enough, or flashy enough. He's talking to the ones who are saying that if God really loved Paul, if God was really using Paul, there wouldn't be so many bad things happening in his life. And that's the canary in the coal mine. Did you see it? This is it. Confirmation that some of the chowderheads on the ground in Corinth 
even though they knew the gospel, didn't believe the gospel. How can he say that? Well, first, because what his opponents despised about Paul actually weren't his character flaws. That's what's so funny. What they despised about him was the divine life of Jesus inside of Paul, specifically the meek, humble brand of leadership style it produced in him. His opponents preferred that kind of gospel tone death leadership style of the super apostles. It relied on slick appearance, insanely eloquent speaking styles, domineering and impatient leadership styles. And by the time you get to chapter 11, public humiliation as part of their strategy. It's really, really toxic stuff. Secondly, Jesus' divine life inside Paul has also thrust him into what Philippians 3 calls the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. In other words, Paul has hit maddening roadblocks, betrayals, disasters, like shipwrecks, um, physical handicaps even, and the super apostles in their fan club also dismissed him for that as well. And the irony of all of this was that the gospel they said they loved, right, is a message that God voluntarily assumed and took on limitations, weaknesses, misfortune, and tragedy in the person of Jesus Christ. That he might deliver them from the tragedy behind all tragedies. Death, hell, and the grave. It was only after Jesus, to quote Philippians, emptied himself into the form of a servant, became a man, and submitted to like a humiliating death on the cross that God raised him from the dead and gave him a name that was above every other name. Paul's not against glory. He's not against awesome displays of power. He just knows it comes by taking the low road. In Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down. So far down, you come back up on the other side. Maybe some of you can relate. Paul says in other places, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, that believers in Jesus, contrasted to unbelievers, they're those who have treasure in clay jars to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not themselves, right? Um, So it shouldn't shock the celebrity apostles on the ground that this guy Paul... And their roadies was that sometimes in his ministry so utterly burdened, he said in chapter 1, beyond his strength, remember this, that he despaired of life itself so that he felt he'd received the sentence of death in order that he would rely not on himself but on God who raises the dead. And as a believer in Jesus, Paul didn't look for suffering because... It finds those who follow Jesus pretty quickly. A Jesus who also, if you think about it, was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that Simon of Serene, a bystander, had to be brought into the road to carry his cross to Golgotha because he couldn't lift it anymore. A Jesus who didn't, just didn't feel like he'd received the sentence of death was arrested in the middle of the night and expedited to death row by the Sanhedrin. 
a Jesus who, slipping in and out of consciousness on a cross underneath the Middle Eastern sun, also had to rely not on himself, but on God, who raises the dead, whom he would join in about 10 minutes. When he gasped into your hands, I commit my spirit. Everything I just said does one thing. It underscores the irony of this whole tussle with these super apostles. Because the entire case against Paul in Corinth was that his limitations, his weaknesses, made the gospel look undignified. Which is like saying you don't like the ocean because it's too wet. Have you read the gospel? Nobody flees to that for dignity. They flee to it for survival, for food. You ever seen a starving man finally come across food? It's not dignified. See, it's not just that the opponents on the ground in Corinth didn't know this undignified gospel. It's that deep down it made them dry heave. That's why he calls them unbelievers. They'll show up, take the Lord's Supper, and smile, but at the end of the day, their passions were animated by the very value systems, judging people on appearance, by eloquence, all of that, that Jesus came to dismantle. What else would you call them? Now, let's take a break real quick. Let's come up for air. It is easy to say, gee, Corinthians, tricks are for kids, when will you ever learn? So simple. Forfeit the value system of the world. Embrace the value system of Jesus. It's not so simple. In fact, I think we need to fight this probably more than most generations before us. Because we struggle with competing value systems to what the gospel values in real, related, but subtly different ways. I think I first realized this in my early 20s. For a while, I was involved with a megachurch in Indiana, and one year they decided sort of off the cuff um, to do an Easter pageant, like, the, like a big old Easter pageant, so like animals coming through and like you know, hundreds of people and all that jazz, right? And because it was like this massive church, they didn't have any casting problems, Right? We had theater majors going there. It was fine. So we had enough people to be the Roman soldiers. We had enough people to be the Pharisees. We had enough people to be Mary and Martha, the disciples, all of that, right? And we had somebody to play Jesus. In fact, he actually got the part. And then after he got the part, the church decided, huh, we need someone a little more striking to play Jesus. Yeah. He'd ask off of work to attend rehearsals and all this jazz. And instead of using him in the play, they used him as the uh, proxy so people can say their lines to Jesus during the rehearsals leading up to the curtain call. And what the church did, this is not a word of a lie, is they contracted with a talent firm in Los Angeles and got an actor, flew him out 72 hours before the pageant so he could do dress rehearsals, and then go on 
for the three performances that Sunday. And he went six foot five. He was literally taller than everyone there. Muscular build, not too bulky, not too thin. Facial features, hilariously perfect. His diction, man, like just the way he talked was like perfect. You think about this, the Corinthians being really into eloquence and the perfect delivery. Gosh, this guy's delivery was unbelievable. In fact, it was, what was really funny. It was uh, I, I can't remember if it was the girl playing Mary Magdalene or might have been Martha. She met the guy playing Jesus during the uh, dress rehearsal, and she goes, I had no idea Jesus was a 10. Interesting. Neither does the New Testament. We've hit a vein here, haven't we? And maybe it was because I was jealous, and, but the scene, because I'm like, this isn't Jesus, but the scene in the play where all like the street urchins are crying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I decided I was going to say Jeebus instead of Jesus as an allusion to a Simpsons episode where in a moment of crisis, Homer prays to a God he seldom cared about, always ignored by screaming, save me Jeebus from a hijacked airplane. I wasn't thrilled about the whole thing. But take the actor's height. Six foot five. Got that in your head? Six five. Now recall that the average adult male in first century Israel was between five foot four and five foot five. With an average weight of 110 pounds to 120 pounds. Jesus of Nazareth is shorter than almost everyone in this room. He looks nothing like we think he does. Now ask yourself, and just be honest. Is there a part of you deep inside that's disappointed that the king of, king of kings would only come up to about here if you saw him? Just be honest. It's okay. Take the actor's flawless delivery. Now recall that Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. And in first century Palestine, Galilean accents were to the rest of Israel what the Appalachian accents on Diane Sawyer's Appalachian news special are to Midwesterners. A lot of twang, not that attractive. Early Judean rabbis actually mocked Galilean accents all the time. The term they keep throwing around in the literature is sloppy speech. That's how it comes across. Sloppy speech. The style actually was so notoriously mocked that it was famous in a way, and it almost got Peter in trouble. Remember how easy it was for those around the fire when Jesus or Peter denied Jesus to hear in his diction? Matthew 26, after a little while, bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly, you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Jesus was from Galilee, like Peter. Jesus has an accent that would betray typical ideas of how he should sound. Of course it betrayed him. 
So let me ask you. Is there a spot somewhere, I mean somewhere, back, 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 in like a dark corner of your soul where you're disappointed your creator wasn't exceptionally pleasant to listen to? Well, everyone said, like, no, we never heard teaching like that. Yeah, because he taught with authority, not because he sounded like James Earl Jones. That Jesus' voice sounds nothing like our contemporary standards for what a pastoral spiritual delivery would sound like. And you'll see the funny thing is that in the Gospels, the elite, the upper echelons, the upper class, they never recognize their maker's voice. But tax collectors did. So did the woman caught in adultery. So did the storms on the Sea of Galilee and the water at a wedding in Cana. Leprosy also recognized his voice. So did fevers, crippled limbs, and so did the dead. And those who at times just wished they were dead. Like Paul. His voice finds you in the dark. Accent and all. And a Jesus who stands up to the scrutiny of changing cultural norms is not strong enough to bail you out when it counts. Paul knew it. He was trying to get the Corinthians to know it too, man. All of this is to say the super apostles couldn't see Paul rightly because they couldn't see God. And they couldn't see God because they didn't look low enough. And you can't partner in the work of God with someone who has no idea what God is like. Which brings us thirdly to the partnerships. What's he wanting to break off? Best way to summarize it, it's spiritually motivated commitments with those who distort God's power and obscure God's love. He's saying, pull out of that. Now. Look at the partnerships first that distort God's power. In 2 Corinthians, the mantra is basically this. God's power is working the most when our life is kind of at its worst. That's the assumption. But toxic Christians on the ground there claim the opposite. And Paul says, you have to distance yourself from toxic Christians that shame you for the limitations and misfortunes God uses to show you his power in your life. Distance yourself from toxic Christians that shame you for the limitations you have and the misfortunes God uses for the express purpose to show his power. So let me ask you, do you have a business that failed? Did your mom and dad split up? How much did you learn? How much did you lose when corn prices plummeted? Are you still trying to recover? Did you get cut from the basketball team or football team in a town where high school sports are like freakishly important and vital to your social status? Or maybe you didn't make varsity. Did your marriage disintegrate? Are you still single? Like, do you long for a relationship and everyone and their mom lectures you on why it hasn't happened yet? Who did you bury this year? If any of these resonates with you, 
did you at certain times, through great and terrible pain, granted, notice a spike, an uptick in your trust in God, in your love towards God, and his faith in his goodness? It, it maybe wasn't clearly articulated, but you just had this strange sense. It's going to be okay. I, don't, I can't even tell you why. Or I'm going to be okay. It's a pretty bad diagnosis. I know. And the worst may happen, but I just feel like he's got me. You ever have that happen? Let me encourage you. That was not just in your head. That was real. I know it's real because I read about it. In the 12th chapter, the same letter we're going through. Remember what he said, Paul? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thing, this thorn, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Harper, (laughs) my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's how this works. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. But maybe you have some so-called friends. Maybe you've known them since high school and you kind of hang out with them out of guilt. Who knows? Who in the name of giving you godly advice always interprets your suffering as evidence that God is angry with you or that you're somehow defective. You're open to critique, genuine feedback in your life, as you should be. But they're always indicting you for things beyond your control. Things they insist are deal breakers to God's power in your life. Here's the thing, guys. You're not obligated to spin your wheels in a friendship like that. I hope you know that. When they willingly, knowingly, give you a different message about how the power of God works in weakness, and they don't let you take comfort from that. It's always, you could have done this different. Why didn't you do that? Be patient with them, yes, but if they're lying about the nature of power in the gospel, you got to look out for yourself. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what the super apostles were doing. Because I've got news for you. Those things aren't deal breakers to God's power in your life. That suffering is not a deal breaker to God's power in your life. Those things are God's power in your life. Suffering tailor-made to break me and to break you. Not like a dinner plate, though, broken on the kitchen floor. More like broken, like a horse broken by its rider. Not to keep it from having adventures, but so the adventures can actually begin. You know why I say that? One of the most famous passages in the Bible, Romans 8, It's about how suffering prepares you to rule in the new heavens and the new earth. 
that the cry of Abba, Father, the world is not how it should be, is a mark that the Spirit has come to you and said, ruler. He'll join me in the resurrection of the saints. He doesn't break you to hurt you. No. He breaks you to make you stronger. And and golly, I know there is a carnival of horrors in like half the people's lives here. We're like, really, that makes me stronger? I'm not even saying I know how it works. I'm just saying that's how this, this thing ends. So you don't have to stay in buddy-buddy friendship with those who would deny you that comfort. Secondly, he's trying to eliminate partnerships with the Christians in Corinth with those who obscure God's love. Not just distort his power, but obscure God's love. God has loved you, in case you don't know, fully apart from what you produce and how you contribute. God's love is the basis on which you produce and you contribute. Unbelievers, though, produce in order to be loved. Believers produce because they have been loved already. Unbelievers extend love toward their neighbor only when their target performs as desired. Believers love much because they've been forgiven much. And toxic Christians in Corinth and toxic Christians here and toxic Christians where you grew up can't see it. It's not even there. To them, your worth is based on what you can do. How you could impress them. Kind of reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said. You'll soon find that the justice of hell is purely realistic and concerned only with results. Bring us back food or become food yourself. As a believer in Christ, you are called to feast on Christ. Not on those around you. And there may be times when those who seek to suppress the love of God start feasting on you because they don't know how to feast on Christ. You are not to just stand there and let them gnaw you to the bone. That's not how it works. Nor are you called to be feasted on by those who peddle Christ but don't know him. So, We're not to consume people as temporary goods and firewood. And we are to make sure we are not ourselves consumed like that. That's the grace he's giving the Corinthians. And you know what? Sometimes this takes the form of (laughs) false humility or manipulity. You're into making up words. There are people, I'm sure, in your life that obscure the love of God, not because they oppress you, but because they're always expecting the things of you that only Jesus can provide. As one author puts it, it's not easy to distinguish someone truly wanting and needing help and someone who's merely exploiting a willing helper, is it? The distinction is difficult even for the person wanting 
The person who tries and fails and is forgiven, tries and fails and is forgiven, is sometimes the person who wants everyone to believe in the authenticity of all that trying. And I feel like some of you may have been hosed by that a lot. And the idea of walking someone through like discipleship is so odious to you because you cannot stand another black hole in your life. That kind of individual obscures the love of God just as much. It's not always tit for tat like it is in Corinth. There's variation here. And and the confusion this causes is why Paul's command is such a grace to us. So in Jesus, you may prayerfully, humbly, and in community, step away from toxic Christians who use their love, friendship, and, or camaraderie as a carrot to make you busy, usually for them. In fact, to look at Paul's deal, it's like you must lovingly step away from that yoke if you value your health, your sanity, and the field God has called you to plow. See, some of you in the past have been maimed by sharing a yoke with someone you didn't fully understand. Or disillusioned, maybe, by the actions of people you thought loved Jesus, but that ain't true. And things like Christianity now, and especially the church, have become one more inkblot in your life. One more thing you struggle to make sense of and strive to see. Blessed be God and lucky for us. Jesus makes blind men see because that thing's a mess. Let's pray.